Welcome to Health After Cancer. I'm your host, Natasha Steele, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Elle Billman. Hey, Elle. Hi, Natasha. Today we are so excited because we have Dr. Mike Glover in the studio. So, Elle, all cards on the table. Mike is one of my dear friends. He is also a colleague. He is a oncology fellow right now at Stanford. And I really got to know Mike over a shared passion for medicine, taking care of patients, and our mutual enjoyment of sometimes painfully long bike rides around Northern California. After my diagnosis and treatment for my own cancer, I was really searching for community and people within my residency program who were both doctors and cancer survivors. And I just kept hearing from everyone, you have to meet Mike, you have to talk to Mike Lover. And I'm really so glad I did, and I'm equally glad that he agreed to be in the studio with us today. You know, one of the things I love about you, Mike, is not only are you a cancer survivor, but you're really translating your lived experience as a patient into training to be an oncologist. So a huge welcome, and thanks for being here today. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, Long-time podcast listener, first-time podcaster, so I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're all getting used to the sound of our own voice at the same time. (laughs) Mike, can you tell us a little bit about your story and uh, what brought you to cancer survivorship? Sure, happy to. So I grew up outside of Chicago, was healthy, played a lot of sports growing up, was a totally normal kid. And right before I actually went to college, first noticed something, I noticed a small lump on my testicle and actually thankfully said something about it right away. It can sometimes kind of be a little bit of an embarrassing thing to notice. But went to my pediatrician um, the next day, actually, and talked to him about it. He sent me to a urologist the next day. And by that was Monday. By Wednesday, I had had a surgery to remove my right testicle. Unfortunately, that showed that there was testicular cancer there, which is the most common cancer in men, uh, young men. And um, actually had a, a subsequent surgery the next month and went to college, kind of a healthy kid with this kind of crazy story that happened over the summer and was being monitored every month with x-rays. About three months later, my, in my freshman year, was got a, uh, received a call from my oncologist and said, hey, Mike, something looked a little weird on your chest x-ray. I want you to go back in for a CT scan. So I went back in for a CT scan, not really thinking much of it, but my, my parents, who lived far away at the time, came down and said that you know they were a little bit nervous about what this might be and actually had you know recurrence of cancer in the, in the chest and the lungs at that time. So took a few months off college and went home um, to Chicago and was treated by my local oncologist. And since then, I've been totally healthy. So that was about 11, 11 years ago. At the time of my cancer diagnosis, I was a pre-med major, a neuroscience major in college, and kind of thought I wanted to be a doctor, but but wasn't really sure about what I wanted to do. And so I'm sure this, this uh, kind of experience really taught me a lot about who I was and what I wanted to do. Yeah, it's an amazing story from going and the experience of being a cancer patient and getting treated and navigating what that feels like to being in the oncologist seat yourself. And, you know, what what effect do you feel like oncology had on your life in terms of deciding your specialty? Obviously becoming an oncologist, but was it was it because of the way it felt being treated as a patient or was there something totally different about oncology that grabbed you? I think it was the the idea of discovery. So actually, I had you know many experiences with different oncologists. One that really sticks out in my mind is a guy named uh, Larry Einhorn, Dr. Larry Einhorn, out of Indiana, and he is probably I don't want to speak about his age, but you know he's been around for a very long time. In the 70s, he um, developed this uh, regimen for testicular cancer called BEP, with a three-drug regimen that improved the survival rate from 10% to 90%, which it is today. 
And so this guy who's you know been around for a very long time, he's still kind of the expert in testicular cancer today. And so after the end of my treatment, there was some concern that there might be still residual disease. My mom panicked, sent this guy, Larry Einhorn, an email at, at 10 p.m. on a Sunday night. And he responded to her in about five minutes and said, you know, bring him to Indiana. We'll see him, you know, the next day. And so that experience with him, you know, first taught me about who I wanted to be as a doctor, someone caring and, and um, thoughtful and understanding where people are in their journey, but also as a scientist, someone that, you know, developed this treatment regimen and was able to put it through trials and, and you know, improve patients' lives. So that, that combination of things, being able to care for patients, but also using research and developing science were, were kind of the appeal of oncology to me. I love that. And I love the model that he set for you in terms of the kind of doctor that you wanted to become. And I can say from knowing you professionally and personally, I think you are well on your way to doing that for the people you care for. Yeah. Since this is a survivorship podcast, we like to ask all of our guests, when was the first time you learned about survivorship? Good question. I think probably in medical school. And I think that my journey to survivorship was a little bit odd because you know I was a pre-med uh, major in college, but I was 18. And I really didn't take much in. My my parents were always there for all the meetings. I didn't really like kind of think about what my life would look like after cancer. I think I was more focused about like getting back to like fraternity rush in my freshman year of college, honestly. So I wasn't really thinking about like kind of what my life would look like afterwards. Really until medical school when I would see the oncologist there and he would talk to me and say, hey Mike, like are you exercising? Are you eating well? Or he's like, yeah, sure, but like why do you care about these things? And so that was kind of my first introduction into what survivorship is and why do we care about survivorship? I think that's really interesting. You know, Elle's talked a lot about her experience being an adult survivor of childhood cancer and when the consciousness shifts. You know, you're describing a lot of similar situations. You were treated as an adolescent, but your parents were really in the driver's seat when it came to coordinating a lot of your care and absorbing the information and taking it to heart in terms of what it meant to be a steward of your healthcare going forward. And I've heard you say a lot of the same things, Elle, and I'm curious, Mike, like what was that shift like for you? Like at what point were you like, wow, okay, now I'm a medical student or I'm a doctor and I'm a cancer survivor and like this means something for my future? Yeah, I, th I think my oncologist actually in medical school. So, you know, you kind of grow and, and meet different people in your journey, right? So especially when you move a lot like we do in medicine. So you kind of had my oncologist in Chicago, but then you also have to, you know, when you move and reestablish somewhere else, you, you meet someone else. And this person really kind of emphasized to me is cancer is this lifelong journey. Like you've reached this, you've passed this point here, but there's a whole lifetime of things that you have to think about in the future. How was it for you establishing care with new physicians and describing and informing them of your cancer history? That's a good question. I think it was fine because I was connected to the medical system. I knew kind of how to you know, call people and ask for appointments. I think the one thing that has been difficult for me is just like making the appointments. And mm -hmm. so as a busy, you know, working adult, whether you're in, you know, medical school or a doctor or whatever, or just like a working professional, you know, you have to realize that these appointments are always during the day. They're always Monday through Friday. And so mm -hmm. it's just difficult to make time to actually like take care of these things, especially when you kind of like push to the back of your, of your mind. Can you talk a bit about your experience getting your medical records or understanding what the treatments like were, were when you were in college and how that's informed your understanding now as a medical oncologist? I think, fortunately, I remember the drugs and kind of the general regimen, but I don't have any of the records, and I don't have the pathology. And if someone, if I, God forbid, something were to happen where I were to need that again, I'm in touch with my oncologist who might be able to get it. But other than that, I really don't know how to do that, and I think that's a major issue that we have. 
Yeah, I feel like that that's one of that's been one of the most unbelievable parts for me of interacting with cancer survivors across the age and lifespan is that that critical part of your health information is missing for a lot of people and you are you're an oncologist like you're the perfect person that should have all of that information and it's still really hard and I feel the same way as a physician like I'm the person that should have the knowledge and the understanding and it's still hard and so I always imagine what it's like for different patients who aren't maybe as fluent in the, a lot of the medical terminology or understand how to get the records, things like that. It's just a huge problem. What about you, Al? Yeah, getting my medical records was a bit of a journey. The, the point of my life when I kind of became conscious about survivorship and, you know, that it was important for me to be aware of my cancer history so I could manage my health in the future happened in high school when I was dealing with some late effects. And as a high schooler, I didn't want to talk to my parents about my cancer history, so I went about trying to figure it out myself. And it kind of got to a point when I was like, you know, it's really important that I know this stuff about myself. And I, I got really frustrated that I, I couldn't figure it out on my own. And I ended up actually calling the hospital that I was treated at and requested that they send me all of my medical records. So I got 500 pages loose leaf in the mail. And I looked at them a little bit, but now they're in a drawer and maybe I'll refer to them if I need to, but so far I haven't I haven't needed to. Yeah. And th- those records will have many pages full of uh, vital signs you don't care yes. about and meds that you didn't uh, need to know. I've seen those pages many times. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like every time a patient comes in who's been transferred from an outside hospital, like 70% of what accompanies them are observations about if they were calm in bed or, you know, just yeah. like random things that you're like, <laughs> wow, this really isn't helpful in the longitudinal care for this person. And so I think so many of those elements are part of billing and part of the bigger issues within the healthcare system that cancer survivors inadvertently face. Yeah. Can we plug it all into ChatGPT to like distill it down for us or something? Maybe? <laughs> I'm really hopeful ChatGPT is the answer to survivorship, to yeah. be honest. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about if and when you prepare your own patients for survivorship? Like, what does that look like? I think we've heard from a lot of people that we've interviewed, the moment that they heard survivorship would be a challenge while they were getting active treatment, like, is so vivid for them. They, you know, were going through chemotherapy and they heard or they saw a TED Talk or they observed somehow that this next phase was going to have its own unique challenges and how do you go about that in your own practice yeah i think i think you have to take a multifaceted approach i think you know when the first time i talk to someone the first time you discuss the treatment plan it's obviously important to talk about what are some side effects one of the active drug but also kind of future things you think about so in terms of radiation you always have certain kind of long-term effects of radiation different chemotherapy drugs have those things it's important to talk about those up front, but I think it's so hard to kind of take that all in when you're hearing about your cancer treatment that it's maybe not the best time to really talk about that then. And I kind of hopefully talk about things kind of as we go through the path and say, you know, we're again kind of checking your cholesterol because it's important to think about your long-term cardiovascular health, things like that, kind of as you maintain the relationship with the patient going forward. So I think it's something that you kind of continuously do it throughout the journey. Yeah, I think as both a survivor and a physician, I struggle with knowing at what point, like how to balance information with assurance, because I've also seen survivors reflect on maybe a chemotherapy choice that they would have made a different decision about had they known everything. And 
as doctors, you, you can't possibly list every side effect for every drug. You can talk about big ones, but not all of the smaller risks. And so I think it's hard. And I think, like you're saying, you, you have to individualize it as well, because what some person might consider too much information is too little for the next patient. So Yeah. And I think, you know, we always have to kind of make the best decision we can with the, the information we have. And so as a doctor, as a patient, we kind of take everything we possibly can and try and make the best decision, realizing that, you know, there'll be things in the future that we don't think about. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your identity as a patient, as a cancer survivor, and your identity as a physician and how those two intersect? I never really thought of myself as a cancer survivor for the first maybe six or seven years after I had received treatment. Like I said, I went back to college and I joined a fraternity and I did all these other things. That I thought, oh, I'm this person, I'm this person. But it was never like, oh, I'm a cancer survivor. And then I think, you know, through medical school and in residency and seeing these patients and identifying with, you know, not just people that had testicular cancer or people that even have cancer in general, but someone who was young and went through this kind of traumatic thing, I really started to identify myself more with those people and try to think about some of the things that people like Dr. Einhorn, but also like my own oncologist, Dr. Ahmed, had taught me about what I want to be in a doctor. So identifying the compassion and, um, and the different traits I saw in them that I wanted to exemplify as well. Do you ever include your own diagnosis or your own experience in the care of your patients and disclosure or things like that? Yes, I do. Um, and I, you know, one of the major things I focus on in my own research is GU cancers. And so cancers of the bladder and prostate and kidney are more common, but also we see young men with testicular cancer. And I really do think it's important to, and it's helpful sometimes for them to see what the other side looks like. And, you know, for me to kind of talk about my journey. And even if it's not the exact same thing they're going through, and I don't try to like say, oh, this is what you should do, but this is just an example of kind of what I went through and why I understand what you're going through as well. Yeah, I think that humanness and that connection and sort of a leveling of the playing field when it comes to the vantage point that you're delivering information yeah. to the person you're caring for. And I think it's just such a intense bond between yourself and your oncologist. And so I almost felt like if you're treating someone and you didn't disclose that, I was almost like holding something back from them and saying like, you know, th this is who I am. This is who you are. And we kind of meet here. And it's like such a dramatic part of people's life when they're dealing with cancers that I feel like it's like good to be on the same page as them. Yeah, I think also that the idea of hope is so important in the world of cancer. And I think it probably gives people that sentiment when you interact with them and you say, hey, this is what I've been through. You know, what, we're going we're gonna to do this together. I'm going to be by your side every step. Totally. One of the goals of this podcast is to have really diverse perspectives featured. And I'm curious to hear if you can speak a little bit about some of the issues that may be specific to people that identify as male as they're navigating survivorship. Yeah, definitely. So from the very beginning, you know, I was 18 years old and I had a, a cancer of my testicle. And so one of the first things you think about is, how will this affect uh, my life and also my future children? And so, you know, from the very beginning, it was, it was kind of a brought up by my oncologist. It would be important to do, you know, fertility preservation. I will say that kind of my own experience I'll share. I started this journey as an 18-year-old man, and I had a, a cancer of my testicle. And so I think naturally one of the thoughts are about fertility preservation, my future children, how this would affect myself. I think my oncologist was, was upfront with that and talked about it from the very beginning and recommended that I did that. And I, you know, we went, I went through that with my parents and I was 18 years old and I 
didn't really kind of keep track of that in the future. And so honestly, it was like kind of put out of mind and something that you have to think about and kind of continue to support and pay for. Basically, I banked sperm, but then forgot about it and stopped Mm -hmm. paying for it. And I lost that sperm. Mike, I I just want to pause. Like what you said is a big deal. I I can only imagine the experience of going through banking your sperm and then, you know, thinking that you have it there waiting for you when you get to the stage of life where you're going to need it and then all of a sudden having it destroyed. I just really I, I, I can't imagine what that felt like. Can you can you talk a little bit about what the conversations were like with your medical team around fertility preservation? while you were going through treatment? Yeah, and I think it was kind of important at two different time points actually for me. One was prior to surgery. I had a large surgery on my abdomen that that posed a risk to different things involved in fertility. So he actually up front, the surgeon, made sure that I went to this kind of private clinic in Chicago to do fertility preservation. And then again, prior to chemotherapy. I think, you know, one thing that can get lost as we talked about in survivorship before is that you have to kind of stay on top of these things. And so, you know, making sure you're paying for your, you know, ongoing sperm banking, things like that can be very difficult to stay on top of, especially as you transition from the pediatric side to the adult side. I actually, you know, my surgery, I was 17 and 11 months and I had scheduled for, I think it was say Wednesday. And they called me on Monday and said, hey, you actually have to go to surgery on Tuesday because you have to be operated on the pediatric wing of the hospital, and we don't have a spot in the, in the pediatric wing of the hospital on Wednesday, so we're going to surgery tomorrow. And so I think that kind of transition, I was really, truly right at the bounds of pediatric and adult, you know, for fertility, for just kind of my entire treatment in general, I had to kind of keep in mind going forward. Speaking of fertility, it's, I'm kind of going through an interesting time for me because I'm 25, I'm still on my parents' insurance, and I found out that the insurance that we have covers egg freezing. Um, If you have a medical history, that suggests that you may have impaired fertility. And I'm leaving for medical school soon, so I've kind of been trying to figure out like, okay, I I should really try to maximize this insurance and consider egg freezing if it is needed. So I've been going through that. And it's just very odd to be thinking about it now because fertility and having kids is something pretty far off for me still and I'm still kind of figuring out what I see for my future in in that regard yeah well congrats on medical school Ella. <laughs> oh thank you <laughs> I think cancer and cancer survivorship accelerate so many processes that are different than like age appropriate milestones and I think your example of fertility both of yours is you know one of them it's just something that wouldn't necessarily be on your radar. I see a lot of cancer survivors who have sort of premature cardiovascular disease because of their radiation or some of the medications they were on. And those things just aren't, you wouldn't even know to think about them if you hadn't had these experiences. So I think so much of survivorship is figuring out what you don't know that you don't know and reframing the way that you approach your health. So totally. And just kind of jumping off one of the things you brought up, which is totally true. It accelerates basically everything in our life. I'm curious, Al, how early do you disclose with a partner kind of what you've been through? Well, it's been pretty easy these past few years because I spend a lot of my free time doing survivorship stuff. So any person who asks me consistently, like, how was your day? It becomes pretty obvious that I'm very invested in survivorship. I disclose it pretty early on because it's just a part of who I am. I always try to disclose it in a way that's 
this is just a part of my history. It's kind of like the fact that like I have like blue eyes or red hair. It's just a part of me, but not necessarily something that has a lot of like emotion surrounding it still. I, I think, you know, in particular, your question of how male survivorship might be different. You know, there's stigmatisms about, you know, sexual organs, testicular cancer, things like that, that I had to kind of worry about or think about, especially when I was 18. You know, now I'm more confident myself and don't really worry about that type of thing. But that was definitely something that was difficult and it kind of accelerated my conversations with any potential partners. Like, hey, just so you know, this is what I've been through. And so you probably discuss things probably earlier than I would otherwise. Yeah, the other thing I found in disclosure conversations is that people have such a wide range of responses. And I find myself having to manage people's emotions a lot of the time. So if you say, oh, yeah, I'm a cancer survivor, and their first response is, oh, my gosh, are, like, I'm so sorry. Then you're all of a sudden in a place where you're like, navigating someone else's emotional response and, and reassuring them, saying, no, 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 it's okay. You know, that, and, and that is exhausting to do at scale, right? And so I have found for my own energetic preservation that it's really important for me to pick and choose when, whether it's in a personal setting or a professional setting, because people, while they are well-meaning, will take up a lot of space with their emotional response to your diagnosis. <laughs> totally. totally. And the other kind of interesting thing on that is like, when I'm talking to people and they had that kind of emotional reaction, I always respond like, oh, actually, it's a good cancer. Like, I'm yeah. fine. It's been yeah. 12 years. It, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. But I think that's also kind of taking away from some of the experience, especially you know, for me somewhat, but honestly more for my parents. This wasn't a good cancer for them. It was very traumatic and like this was a very long experience for them. So I think also we kind of take away from ourselves a little bit when we have to constantly like reassure people we're fine. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I agree that it also creates the the sentiment of it wasn't that bad. It's it's totally fine. Where it's like, yes, and any illness is a trauma on the body, on the family unit, on your community, on so many different ways it kind of like ripple effects. And so I think I've seen a lot of survivors have, maybe they didn't have chemo, they only had surgery, or maybe they only had chemo, not radiation, and they feel less entitled to this grief period or this identity because they're like, well, it just wasn't that, it wasn't like you see in the movies or it wasn't like my friend who unfortunately passed away and, you know, I think that does not serve anyone. And we certainly wouldn't say that to our patients. We wouldn't be like, you have the good cancer. This right. is going to be fantastic. You're going to love it. <laughs> like, well, I, I do think one of my early experiences, someone, an oncologist kind of did say that to me. And I think it really was hard on me. So I was like, this is not good for me. Yeah. So something I kind of carry forward with my own patients. Yeah. And I can imagine in oncology, because you see a wide range of pathologies when you encounter something that is more treatable, you're excited and you want your patients to feel that excitement, but it takes that space from them of really owning what just happened to them. Whenever I see a germ cell tumor patient clinic, I do think, yes, this is a good cancer, but I don't say that to them. Yeah. So. One of the cool things I think about the three of us being in the studio today is, you know, Mike, you and I are practicing doctors, but Ella, you're about to start medical school. And being a cancer survivor, I think I'm, I'm really, I'm trying to picture how you're going to feel for the next four years, learning about cancer biology and, and taking care of patients, having been through that experience yourself. Have you thought about that at all? Yeah, I have thought about that quite a bit. Um, 
I think in medical school, I will have a lot of realizations because I remember parts of my cancer treatment, but it's through the lens of a three-year-old. So I'll give two examples. The first one is I remember I occasionally would have some type of scan done. And in the scan, I remember feeling like pressure applied to my back. I have no idea what this scanner is called, but as a three-year-old, I called it a donut machine. (laughs) Yeah, we still call it a donut machine. We call it the donut of truth, yeah. (laughs) The CT scan. (laughs) Oh, okay. So it's a CT scan. Yeah, so stuff like that. Like, in my mind, there's this machine called a donut machine, but I'll have to learn that it's actually called the CT scanner. Um, So realizations like that, and then... But I think, Elle, can I just interject? Like, I think it's going to make you so much better, right? Because you're going to know when you order a CT scan for someone, hey, you know, you'll be able to say to them, I used to call this a donut when I was a kid, it's not a very long scan. I know what it feels like to be in there. You're going to have such a different perspective taking care of people who are going through something really difficult having done done it yourself. Even though you don't have distinct memories of the entirety of your treatment, like you still within you know the last 20 years of your survivorship, like you've amassed such a wealth of wisdom that will really, I, I think, fuel you in taking care of other people. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you saying that and... I think something I have to think about more is how much I'm going to disclose my cancer history to my patients. That It really just isn't something I've thought about a whole lot. Um, regardless of whether or not I like disclose that up front to them, I definitely always want to kind of like remember how much I resonate with the patient experience and have that be something that's really like a guiding force for me as a physician. So I'm really honoring the patient experience when I'm delivering medical care. Yeah. I love that. And and I in no means meant like you have to tell your patients, oh, like I was three, I had leukemia. Yeah. You know, you don't have to like certainly I I think the dis- the discussion of disclosures when it comes to personal illness in professional settings is like a whole nother topic that I know you and I have talked so much about both on this podcast and, mm-hmm. and just with the two of us. But I think even saying, and I'll say this to patients all the time, I'll say, you know, I, I've been a patient in this hospital and you mm-hmm. don't even sometimes have to say yeah. anymore. You just allude to like, I get it. I've, yeah. I've been there. I know how hard this is and sort of take a deep breath and take space and or or create space for the challenge that they're going through. And I, I've found that to be something that's really, really valuable in mm-hmm. because it's authentic, right? Like yeah. it, you, you really do connect with people in a very different way when you understand at least a part of what they're experiencing yeah it's gonna be very exciting and I'm sure I'll learn as I go along um I love hearing you talk about how your perspective of or maybe how you delivered care changed after you were treated as a patient or I remember the example you give is now whenever you have a patient who's laying in bed you'll like sit down or kneel down so you get at their eye level. Um, and I just love that. And I I want to be a physician who does that too. I love that. And I can only imagine that your experience as a patient has informed your understanding of what makes a valid endpoint when looking at cancer therapeutics. So yeah, that's fantastic. As a cancer survivor and a future physician, I've learned so much from this conversation. So Mike, thank you so much for coming in and chatting with us. 
I'm excited for us to circle back in four years once I'm a doctor and have more perspective that I can share. Thanks so much for having me on. I, I look up to both of you, so it's really awesome to be involved in the podcast. Mike, I just want to say another huge thank you to you for being here today and sharing your hard-earned wisdom with us. I know that you know every time you and I sit down and talk about these issues, I learn so much, and I'm really excited for our listeners to get your vantage point as well. So thanks for taking the time and sharing the space with us. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, and leave a rating or review. Your hosts today were Elle Billman and Natasha Steele. This podcast is produced by the Stanford Medicine EdTech team. Our producer for this episode was Dila Baumgartner. Our creative director is William Botini. Our sound engineer is Bindu Madava. This episode was edited by Grace Sextro. Our guest today was Mike Glover. For more resources and information from our hosts and guests, please visit our podcast website at www.healthaftercancer.com. Thank you for listening.